We have been working our way through the high priestly prayer of John 17, where Jesus, with the cares on his heart for those who followed him, goes before his Father, seeking that he would care for them. The words of John 17, 11, and 12 are printed on your yellow sheet. If we'll read that together, bearing in mind that these words of Jesus are the inspired word of God. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, thank you that you have spoken. You didn't need to speak. You didn't need to give us your word, but you chose to. And so we might know you. We might know your character. We might know your person. We might know your actions. And what a blessing that is. Be with us now as we consider these words that we've just read. Teach us, direct us, speak through your word, which you have told us is living and active. Speak to our hearts through your spirit that dwells within us. Be present in our midst. Draw us ever closer to you. Give us eyes that perceive you as you truly are, that we might be transformed into your likeness, even here and now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned a week or two ago, I can't remember when exactly, that, that I'm kind of a child of the 80s in my mind, that I was born in 1971, but you know, that means from the time I was 9 to the time I was 18, 19, was, was the 1980s. And so my adolescence, youth was, was that time period. And, and I, I just have this fond recollection of the 1980s. It's a time that, that has many good memories. I had a very blessed childhood. It was a very positive time for me. And, and much of the cultural uh, miscellany of the 1980s, uh, I remember very fondly. And among that is, is the, the Back to the Future m movie series. You'll recall Michael J. Fox was in the movie where they had a uh, time machine that was made out of a DeLorean. It went back in time, I believe it was 1985 when the first movie came out. It went back in time 30 years to 1955. And, and then some four years later, they made a second movie in 1989. Uh, and that was Back, back to the Future 2. And that, that movie is of special import to me uh, because that was actually when Aaron and I went on our first date. We went to see Back to the Future 2. So... It, it's, it's kind of a happy thing for me that, that our first date was all the way back in the 1980s. Uh, you know, that, that could be part of the 80s. That's part of what made the 80s great. 
But another thing I enjoy about the Back to the Future movies is, is the whole time travel aspect. I'm a sucker for a good time travel story. And you could argue that some of the stories in the Back to the Future saga weren't actually very good stories. But nevertheless, I enjoy them because, because I enjoy time travel. Not doing it myself, but just stories about it. This passage of scripture, it occurred to me as I was looking at it, it's not exactly about time travel, but there seems to be an aspect of this passage that is kind of messing with time. It's not following the pattern of time that we normally understand to be. Notice here in verse 11, as it begins, Jesus is in the upper room, he's with his disciples, he's praying for them, and he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. No longer in the world, he says. Well, wait a second. <laughs> he, he's very much in the world still. He's right there with the disciples. He's praying for them. He's, he's very much present. And yet he says, I'm not in the world. What gives? Well, what gives is this. Jesus is in the last night of his life. His death is very imminent. But even more than that, he realizes as his death is rapidly approaching, Dying was the very reason for which he came. It is why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It wasn't just to be a good example. It wasn't just to teach us a lot of things. It wasn't just to show us what God wants from us. He came to die. He came to die for our sins. And in John 10, we read these words. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, that, that was his charge. That was his, his job, if you will, in becoming a human being. It was so that he might lay down his life for us. That was his purpose. If Jesus didn't need to die, then it was heartlessly cruel on behalf of his father to send him to die. Right? Because... Why, why submit him to such torture, such pain, such trauma, such horror, if it wasn't absolutely necessary? But you see, it was absolutely necessary because we bear a burden that we cannot pay on our own. Each and every one of us falls short of what God's standard is for us, a standard of perfect holiness. Each one of us fails moment by moment, second by second, to walk with him as we should. And each one of us is completely unable to save ourselves, but the infinite God of the universe who 
took on human flesh and walked the proverbial mile in our shoes is able to die for us. He's able to represent us because he is a man with flesh and bones just like us. And yet he is infinite as the eternal God. So it was necessary that he would come and die. It was also very imminent at this point. Like I said before, this is the last night of his life. It is, it is right there. It is about to happen. And yet it hasn't happened yet. And Jesus says, I am no longer in the world. You see, what the certain things that, that are so certain, that are so imminent, that are so, so absolute to happen, there's no doubt. The Bible sometimes speaks like this. Consider Ephesians chapter 2. I've said before, Ephesians 2 is, is perhaps my favorite chapter of the Bible. Uh, it contains, of course, the, the great passage that speaks of how it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one may boast. But right before that, verses 8 and 9, here's what we read in verses 4 through 6. It says, that, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then listen to what it says in verse 6. It says, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Does anybody remember that? Does anybody remember when they were raised and seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus? Show of hands. None of us remember that, do we? Because it hasn't happened yet. And yet, God can tell us in his word that it has happened. It is so certain. It is so definite. It is so written in indelible ink. It can't be erased. It can't be touched up with touch-up paint that covers it up or something. It can't be made to go away. It is a, a fait accompli. It is done even though, as far as our time understanding of it, it hasn't happened yet. But it is written in the pages of history already. What a blessed assurance that is that, that God has, through Christ Jesus, earned our forgiveness. He has gained us this entrance into the heavenlies. And that he has guaranteed it for us. There's nothing that can take it away. It is already there. We've been assured of it. The future is brought into the present. Kind of like Marty McFly in his time machine, right? Now, when Marty McFly went back to 1955, we could say very truly that he was in a world that was not his own. Now, it was certainly the, the world that he lived in, but it was a different world at the same time, wasn't it? It wasn't his world at all. It was... It was a different world, and, and so it is for us. We, we live in this world that is our world. It's a world that we were created to inhabit. God created us to live in this world, and yet we at the same time can say that this world is not our own in a very real sense. In verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Jesus says they are in the world. Randy prayed earlier on that, that we are in the world 
but not of the world. That is because we are aliens in a very real sense. As Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is not here, but in heaven. That is our true residence. Not so much the place in the sky, but in the presence of God Almighty. That is where we belong, and we, we belong with him in a, a place where everything is right and everything is good. I don't know if you've looked around recently. It's not that way here, is it? We just spent 10 minutes praying about the many ways in this very congregation that it's not that way. Things are broken. People are broken. There are many reasons to be grieved, to be saddened, to be sorrowed, to be, be weeping. And we do weep. Tears fall from our eyes. And it is right that they would because it is not as it should be. But here is the wonderful truth that I can bring to you today. Though the world is not as it should be, it is also not as it always will be. Because God created and everything was perfect. And then through sin, the entire creation fell. But God, through Christ Jesus, is bringing about redemption. Not just for us as individuals, but for the creation as a whole. Because God loves not just individuals, but his creation. He so loved the world, we're told, that he sent his only son. And so God is in this process, we're told, of, of redeeming all things. The, the creation, we read in Scripture, groans under the weight of sin, seeking liberation from it, seeking to be set right. And God is on that day when Christ Jesus returns, going to make all things right. There will no longer be pain or suffering or tears or cancer or broken bones or unemployment or sorrows of any kind. And you know what's most wonderful? On that day, there will be no more sin. It is wonderful to think, and this is what I used to think was wonderful about that. On that day, there will be no more sin, which means nobody will ever sin against me again. And how nice is that, that, that I can know that nobody will ever sin against me again, because I'll have you know, plenty of people have sinned against me in my life. And it's not fun. It hurts. It causes us to lose sleep, to shed tears, to have pain. It is not good to be sinned against. But you want to know what's even better about the fact that there is a day coming when there will be no more sin. What is even better, and not even close, but better by far than the fact that nobody will sin against me, it is the fact that I will no longer sin against anyone else. And especially that I will no longer sin against the holy God who has loved me as his child, who has paid the penalty of my sins. 
Because you know what, as I go through my day, day after day after day after day, I continually turn away from this God who has showered me with grace. I, day after day after day after day, sin again and again. I saw a quote just, just earlier today, and uh, I, I didn't even think about it until right now, but he said, sin is a funny thing. It's, it's at the same time we are able to detest and love our sin. So true, isn't it? That, that we detest our sin. We, we hate the fact that we have this sin in our life, that it enslaves us, that it keeps us in bondage, that it, it beats us down and breaks us. But yet we must love our sin, otherwise we wouldn't turn back to it time and time and time again. It's an odd thing in that way, isn't it? We, we long to be free from sin, and there will be a day when indeed we will be free from sin. And what a beautiful thing that is. But again, it won't just be us as individuals. It will be the entire creation free from sin. So, so there will be no more brokenness anywhere in creation. And if it is such that, that it is God's desire to make the world that way, to set all things to rights in that day, if that is his ultimate goal, should that not be what we seek after now? If we are to follow him, should we not be those who truly pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? So that should mark our lives. We should be those who are, are living lives, not just where we don't wrong people, where we don't, don't actively sin against them, but we should be those who live lives of faith that acts, that works, that looks for ways to serve others. We're going to talk about this more Sunday uh, when we talk about acts of service as one of our core values. It's something we should be seeking opportunities to do so that we can love others and set things to rights. And in so doing, we can be in the world, but not of the world. In John 15, it says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Elsewhere, Jesus says later on in John 17, which we'll get to next week, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Does the world hate you? Now, I'm not saying we should go out and pick a fight. I'm not saying we should go out and try to make people mad at us. But if we're truly following after Jesus, the world will find places where it takes issues with us, where it has problems with us, where, where it doesn't like us, which makes it awfully daunting to be sent out into this world, doesn't it? If we're going to be sent out into a world that hates us, that's not very fun. And it would be especially scary, especially worrisome if we were being sent out alone. But we're not being sent out alone. We're not sent into this world of which we are not a part, but we are in. We don't do that by ourselves. We, we do that with others. First of all, we have unity in the body with God. He is the one who keeps us. Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given to me. Keep them. Be with them. 
Leave them not to themselves. But also, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. You see, that's the design for the church. That's the design, the picture that God has for us is, is that we would be one. Not that we're just, you know, on this night, 50 different people in here who happen to be in the same place at the same time, but rather one unit, one unity, one body working together toward the same goals, trying to accomplish the same things, caring for one another. When you have a problem, you care about it as much as you do. (laughs) And when you have pains and sorrows, you care about it as much as you do. And when we have joys to share, we all rejoice in those joys the same as well. That's the picture. That's the kind of unity that we are to have. It's a radical unity. It's, it's not just a run-of-the-mill kind of we're all on the same team, but we might get traded away later or you know, be a free agent and go play for some other team. No, it's, it's being bound together. It's kind of like, you know, like super glued together. And there's no solvent that can pull us apart. We are one with one another. Perfectly one. We are to do this, Jesus says later on in John 17, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You see, that's the purpose here, is that we would live as one so that the world might know we are those who follow Jesus. We love one another because he has loved us. And in showing that kind of love to the world that is watching, they can see the kind of love that Jesus would have for them as they turn to him. Father, keep them in your name. Keep them. While I was with them, I kept them, which you have given me. I've guarded them, he says. This idea of keeping or guarding is key. We need not worry. No matter what trials we have, no matter what fear we face, no matter what suffering we have to endure. We know that God will keep us. He will guard us. The Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in you. The body of Jesus Christ stands with you. And the God and Father of Jesus Christ keeps you because of that that we can truly say those words that we said before tonight even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for you are with me may we all be those who can say these words from the bottom of our hearts Not because we're giants in the faith, but because of a giant God that dwells in us. Let's pray. Our Lord, on this day we spent a 
fair amount of time thinking about some of the difficulties that we face, some of the sorrows, some of the griefs, some of the burdens that we bear. And that's good that we would share those with each other. It is good that we would, as a body that is joined together, share those burdens, not try to carry them by ourselves. We thank you for this body that you've put together around us. We thank you that it is not just a group of people, but you dwell in our midst. We are not just the body, but we are the body of Christ, whose spirit lives in us. What a blessing that is. You are the mighty God who created all things out of nothing. No task is too great for you, and so we rejoice in that fact. We trust in you. We call on you now to be our God, our mighty fortress, our sure protection, the one who guards us and keeps us and loves us as his own. And we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to please rise now and sing hymn number 151, A Mighty Fortress.